spicing things up today on the Like Folio broadcast. We've got a conversation with Daniel Negreanu, who is the only player in World Series of Poker history to be named Player of the Year twice. Uh, he's been at 31 final tables and won six World Series of Poker bracelets um, and over $32 million in winnings. Uh, just a phenomenal poker player, a great guy to talk to. He's a avid Hillary Clinton supporter. Um, and so we got into some politics here uh, right before the election that you might enjoy. Uh, he, we also talked about um, risk control and uh, eliminating your emotions in investing, trading, entrepreneurship, poker, kind of all goes together. I think you'll see that uh, really well. So, uh, it, and he also told us about some businesses he sees on the rise uh, out in Las Vegas, which I think is very interesting. So, uh, enjoy this conversation. It was a great conversation with Daniel. Uh, we had a lot of fun, and uh, here we go. There's a smart new website that will change the way you invest using social media. Like Folio. Here to explain a team of brothers, Andy and Landon Swan, of Like Folio. And they've always been building out great technology at the intersection of social and trading. Powered by unique social data. Analyzed by legendary traders. The Like Folio broadcast starts right now. What's up, Daniel? You're on the Like Folio broadcast with Andy and Landon. It's good to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Um, well, let's go ahead and come out swinging here. The the, uh, the topic of the day, um, a friend of ours, Pat Cruz, introduced us and said, hey, these two got to start talking uh, politics. We got to hear them have it <laughs> out. Um, so let's just come out swinging. You're a smart guy. You're a high energy guy. Why do you support Hillary Clinton for president? Okay, so in bigger picture, this vote this year for myself, and I am an American citizen, I became one specifically so I could vote, is more of an anti-Trump vote than it is a pro-Hillary vote. Um, I, you know, I do realize that the Clintons have already been in office for eight years, and I felt like they did just fine. You know, the, the, We weren't at war with either Iran or Afghanistan or anything like that, and prosperity-wise, the country did okay, and I think we will again. So my vote this year is more um, a fear of the type of change that Donald Trump's presidency and the legitimacy he gives to the, you know, racist white nationalist vote. It's not a coincidence. It's just not a coincidence that every white nationalist group and KKK supports him. It's because his dog whistling that's been going on in the last year and a half is loud and clear. And it's quite obvious. Gotcha. So for you, and I think for a lot of people, um, the election is about voting against someone more than it is voting for someone. Oh, that's absolutely true. I think more so than ever. I don't think we've ever had two candidates with uh, unfavorability ratings as high as these two. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, so really, you know, it, it, it bothers me when people see this as like the false equivalency, like, well, they're both the same. No, you know, you have to pick one or the other, clearly, because a, a, a vote for Gary Johnson or Jill Stein is essentially a non-vote, a non-vote which supports the candidate that you like, that you dislike more. So you really have to pick and it's you know, unfortunate that that's the way the system is in America, but you have to pick between one of these two. And I believe that one, the policy wonk, Hillary Clinton, who understands politics, has been in it for 30 years, um, a little more sane and a little more stable, is a safer choice for at least the next four years. Gotcha. Um, okay, so I'm going to take the other side. Um, that's a shock. I, yeah, I'm going to take the other side and just say, all right, I think that I'm not going to dismiss either half of the country okay so we've got two halves of the country one half saying 
Hillary Clinton is uh, very competent and you know experienced and and can lead the country. Another half saying Donald Trump is uh, very competent, a leader, a successful businessman can lead the country. They also have negative things to say about each other. So Hillary Clinton is evil and corrupt. Donald Trump is uh, crazy and racist and uh, very dangerous. So if I take all of those into account and I say, all right, I'm clearly voting for the lesser of two evils. My, my position is, I want to vote for the one that does not have the media in their back pocket, that does not have a support system in the Department of Justice that allows them to get away with things. I want someone who is going to be checked by the system and not be a part of the system and and an integral part of, you know, sort of being the puppet master of that system. Yeah, and I would argue that the media is what specifically what supported and created Donald Trump in the first place. When he was running in the primaries against 17 other people, he's, he's gotten billions of dollars worth of revenue. I'm sorry, with uh, versus uh, advertising through the media supporting and, and, and just following every crazy, absurd thing he said throughout the last year and a half. And uh, it really propelled him to the position that he was to even have it. So the idea that it's, it's funny because he always, you know, you know, uh, blames the media for this and that when they're really the, they're the ones that created this monster. Yeah. As far as being part of the system. Trump is more intricately part of the system and has been part of pay for play for many years before he was a politician. I don't know why we would expect that to change in any way, especially with all his ties to Russia and the private servers he has with financial institutions over there. Um, and obviously his admiration for, uh, for dictators like Putin. I don't know that, you know, there's much difference in that area in terms of their pay for play politics. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so you don't think that the media. Um, buildup of Trump in the primaries was at the behest of the Clinton campaign? Because if you look sometimes at some of these WikiLeaks, uh, they were really wanting Trump or, you know, a Ben Carson type of figure to come out of the Republican nomination process. And they were, you know, they were letting the media um, connections that they have uh, know about that. They That's who they were rooting for. I think it's kind of disingenuous to say, you know, Trump benefited from this media onslaught when um, I, and I agree with that, but to not recognize that that was partially at the request of the Clinton campaign. Well, you know, I, I don't disagree with one thing for sure. And that's that if Rubio, you know, Jeb Bush or John Kasich were the nominee, they'd have a much better shot of winning because as you've mentioned before, Hillary Clinton clearly has some baggage and, you know, a history of, you know, you know, backroom deals and pay for play type situations. Um, having said that, I mean, to put the entire like it wasn't you know i don't know that the clinton campaign has much say over what fox news does and fox news themselves was covering trump of course cnn was um every news outlet was and i I find it hard to believe that the clinton campaign was fully behind or the reason for that it's ratings news networks have changed it's not like the 80s where you had nbc abc and cbs and they would try to be fair and balanced now cable news is simply driven by ratings and for for you know the truth is donald trump drives ratings People right. want to watch what he has to say and listen. So I, I find that just a, a stretch to think that the Clinton campaign chose Trump as their nominee uh, based on, you know, planting the media uh, you know, coverage. Right. And I would also echo something you just said. It wasn't as if the media companies decided to go with Trump. He was outrageous. He was one of 16 
that you are one of 17 that he got all the attention because he grabbed the attention. And so I think they went with the ratings and it kind of fed itself. Of course, he's larger than life. I think um, good or bad. That's that's what he is. Um, so to kind of shift here, I don't think we're going to convince each other to vote the other way. Um, right. To kind of to shift and get into some insights from this. So in a in a tweet you put out recently that I really liked, um, you said that if you know, I'm paraphrasing that if you find yourself to be the less experienced player at the table or, you know, somewhat outmatched, you should make your bets bigger. Um, right. Can you kind of get into that mentality a little bit for us and also, you know, to kind of bring back the political angle, isn't that sort of exactly what Trump has done in, as a political novice since the beginning of this campaign? Just just really bet big at, as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, he's flailing. It's like if you think of a boxing match and you type two boxers, you have one boxer who's measured, careful, playing within a system, keeping his guard up and throwing jabs. Then, you, you know, he's boxing against somebody who's just flailing away. And just throwing rabid punches, right? And this is what Trump has done. And, and to his credit, that's, you know, he opened his campaign by starting by saying they're bringing their, they're not bringing their best. They're rapists. They're murderers. You know, Mexico's sending, they're not sending their best as though they're sent, like the Mexican government is sending people over, like they're sending the criminals, right? That's how he opened his campaign. It's very shock, you know, you know, massive shock value, um, definitely outside the box. And that's what helped propel him because. I don't believe that if, you know, the, the GOP ran just two to three candidates that he would have won. I think the fact that there were 17 spread the vote so much and because he was able to gain so much of the attention and, you know, was so outlandish, a lot of people tapped into what he does, partly speaking at a fourth grade level. He does not speak as an, he's not an eloquent speaker. You know, he's very repetitive in what he says. He's, and, he, you know, people always say, you know, he's the voice of the people because a lot of them can understand where he's coming from. It's not a coincidence. He does extremely well with uneducated voters, the voters that do, are not college educated, you know, the angry, uh, old, angry, uneducated, older white vote is his, is his like base. And it's not a coincidence. If you think, if you look at college educated whites, she, she actually does a lot better because they're afraid of what they see with him in terms of the rise and the anger that he's fostering and, and, and pandering to with those that are, you know, anti-Muslim, anti-Mexican, anti-black, this is their this is their voice. He's certainly not my voice. Right. Um you you threw a lot out there. I think um I, I think you hold a position that a lot of people hold uh when it comes to Trump in terms of what he's tapping into. I think you're right in some respects. I think it goes beyond that. I think that there's an incredible uh movement of the rejection. Uh, did you see this um the Harvard men's soccer team has has had the rest of their season canceled because it was found out that they were rating the women's team individuals based on appearance. I mean, so there, there's this like politically correct, you know, sort of, I, I don't albatross just covering the country. And I think that there's a massive rejection of that. There's a massive rejection of media bias that's playing into this as well as some of those more, uh, you know, underbelly type of things that you're talking about i think for a lot of us there's just this kind of all right it's time to i'm tired of this bush clinton machine i'm tired of this media machine i'm tired of this political correct uh nonsense i'm ready to just kind of give a middle finger to everybody let an outsider come in and just see what the hell happens because it, it's it's going to be all right I, that's my take yeah and, and i don't disagree with you in one specific area that 
part of the reason for Trump's rise is that there is a sort of backlash against the extreme left's, you know, uh, overextension of political correctness. Like we're looking at Hillary Duff going out on Halloween wearing, a, you know, an Indian costume and chastising her for that. Like there's an extreme version and, and, and a lack of tolerance, really, from the, from the far left on a lot of college campuses. Yep. And, you know, but, but, but when we look at what political correctness is, political correctness is a decorum of just like civility. It's like, you, you know, you see a black person, you don't call them the N word. You know, you don't see a woman, you don't use the C word. This is what political correctness at is, is at its core. It's gone to the extreme. And I think a lot, I agree with you in the sense that a lot of the older generation is put off by the sense that, oh, if you use the term illegal immigrant, now you're being, you know, racist. And that's 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 not appropriate. So I do agree with you that um, a big part of Trump's allure for these people is the fact that he is an, an absolute middle finger back to the extreme left in this whole, you know, push towards PC. Cool. So I want to know how long um, you've been leaning the direction you are politically. I think about 10 years ago, um, online poker was pretty much made illegal by the Republicans and kind of a surprise, almost underhanded congressional move. And a lot of uh, poker playing buddies that I had, um, you know, some lost their livelihood and uh, were very upset about that. And it kind of turned them off uh, very anti the GOP from, from sort of that moment on. Did that impact uh, you or have you always kind of leaned the more liberal direction or are you kind of a neutral guy tell us about that yeah well you're talking about the uiga which was the unlawful internet gaming enforcement act that was uh put in late on a, on a port bill by a, a republican named bill frist at the last hour kind of like you said underhandedly shadily getting that through um and while a lot of people in poker were upset by that you know may blame the gop my ties to a more liberal view on things probably relates more back to growing up in canada Mm-hmm. You know, a country where, you know, out, well, you, America's the only country up until recently that, you know, the only civilized country in the entire world that doesn't have universal health care of some form, does, that, that doesn't have tariffs on what you can charge for aspirin. I have a couple friends who uh, have HIV and their medication, you know, uh, there's there's rules in place and regulations in other countries where there's only so much you can charge. In America, if every HIV company decided, you know what, we're going to charge them 5000 a pill. There's no law to protect them against that. And I and I get I understand, you know, uh, from a financial perspective, the conservative view on you know free markets and things like that. But I'm a believer in some form of rules and regulations and, you know, you know, free health care for citizens. I believe that's a right. So if, from that perspective, I've always certainly leaned uh, left. I'm not as far left as, you know, a Bernie Sanders socialist type thing. But I feel like when, when you do that, I side with thing to see who you most align with politically, policy wise. I'm most aligned with Hillary Clinton. Got it. Um, you know, a little pushback on your on your um, pharmaceutical slap there. I think that, you know, the other thing that you have to consider, uh, it's because the United States does not have those price caps that many times those drugs exist in the first place. I think that the U.S. gets a bad rap for its uh, health care system because when you look at it, I think that, the American citizens, now this is completely unfair, but American citizens are subsidizing the entire world's 
pharmaceutical advancements. And the reason that that happens is because we somewhat stick to as much of a free market as we can and don't put those type of uh, restrictions in place on our our pharmaceutical companies. So I think that we just have to be careful when we uh, when we talk about, you know, the greed of pharmacy companies and that sort of thing, because there is a lot. If there's any industry in the world that I want to attract capital and talent because of its profits, it's, it's healthcare. And that's a fair point. But if we look back to the 70s when Richard Nixon, uh, and there's tapes that verify this, was spoke specifically about handing over Medicare essentially to the insurance companies. He specifically He specifically called for giving people the least amount of care for the maximum amount of profit for insurance companies. And nowhere else do we see in any other country insurance companies having such a powerful uh, influence on the medical industry in terms of cost for, you know, for the average person. And I understand wholeheartedly that Obamacare in its current form hasn't been, uh, you know, the the savior and obviously premiums are going up. But I would push back on that and say that like what Obama had in mind as far as a bill to pass and the Democrats have for many, many years isn't exactly what passed. It was a, you know, a shell of what he would have liked to see, but it was a, hopefully a step forward. And well, wh- why was that? Why was that? He had complete control. They're the only ones that voted for it. Why wasn't it what they wanted? Because Obama specifically didn't, he, I mean, and this was clear that he could have just done whatever he wanted when he owned the Senate and, and, and uh, the Congress, but he actually wanted Republicans on board with this. He didn't want to make this a partisan issue. He wanted to make sure that it was something that they saw as plausible, as, as, as reasonable enough to put forth. So it wasn't as aggressive as the bill that he would have mm-hmm. liked to get get through. And as a result, I think we're seeing some problems in terms of premiums going up, um, especially I think, you know, there was a recent announcement, I think a month ago, where they're going to go up even more next year. I th- I'm, I, the way I remember it was completely opposite. It was um we we snuck this vote in i think on a christmas eve with zero republican support and we had to do it quick because a republican senator um was replacing an old senator and we had to get it done before he came in just to get the numbers i mean i think it was as partisan as a vote has ever been and i don't think there was any outreach or any i think maybe there were democrats that had to come on board in order to get it done. But I'm pretty sure zero Republicans supported Obamacare at all. And that's possible. I don't, I don't remember exactly how it went. It's obviously been a lot of years. I just remember that I remember a long period of time going, you know, going forward where he was talking about, you know, wanting Republicans to be on board with it. And and, and you may be correct that zero of them did, you know, support it. Okay. To, to kind of move on from just the political weeds a little bit, um, you know, most, most of our audiences, uh, people who trade stocks and options and also a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, people who are putting their money on the line every day in order to achieve what they want. And one of the toughest things for almost everyone doing that is to think about limiting their risk before making a commitment. So do you see this in poker where you know people don't really realize what they've gotten themselves into until they're already kind of pot committed? And you know how do you approach risk reward thinking when you're when you're sitting at the poker table dealing with your own money yeah well i guess the closest analogy for poker players would be bankroll management so let's say there's a really big game going and i know that there's you know it's a juicy game with a lot of bad players and it'd be a good investment for me to make well if if the buy-in for the for that game is a hundred thousand dollars and i have just like a hundred fifty thousand in my name despite me being a favorite and this being a good investment it's a bad decision because I don't because of because of, uh, you know, there is luck involved and there's, you know, what we call 
uh, standard deviation in that, you know, $150,000, I'm likely to actually go broke if I sit down in that game because of variance, right? So the decisions that need to be made beforehand is, you know, do I have enough money? Do I have enough of a bankroll to make such a decision to put myself at risk? And you talk about the markets and, you know, a segue to that with, with Trump is most economists fear a Trump presidency in terms of a, a market crash. There's a lot of hesitancy in that area because of fear of, you know, we don't know what the fallout will be. Have you um, have you traded? Do you trade a lot right now? Are you in the markets? I am not. You know, it's one area that I'm really like green on. I've never really gotten into it. Um, you know, I don't. I gamble at poker. I've not taken on gambling in the stock market. <laughs> Most of the poker players that I know also try to extract value from other areas. So it might be the stock market. It might be sports betting. Uh, might be something else. Are you doing anything else, or have you dabbled in anything else other than poker that's very similar? Well, I have a guy that I trust, and I'm, I do very, very safe investments. Out, you know, very different than my poker, which is you know just very safe municipal bonds that earn about five to seven percent per year with very little risk. Um, but outside of that, you know, I, it would always be gambling. Sometimes golf, you know, gambling on <laughs> golf, and we've played for millions on the golf course. I've I've won my fair share and lost my fair share of money on the on the golf course. What's your handicap? What's your real uh, handicap? My real handicap officially, and then I have not played enough to play to it as I'm a 12 right now. But uh, if I were to go out and play tomorrow, I wouldn't break 90. Gotcha. Um, that's funny. What's your um, What's your advice? You're one of the best um, and most influential poker players out there. Um, what's your advice to you know traders, entrepreneurs, poker players? We're kind of all doing the same thing when you break it down to it. Um, on reducing the role of emotion in your decision making. I think this is one of the things that people struggle with the most. Um, you know, at like Folio, we're constantly telling people to, uh, strictly limit the risk that they take per, per trade and showing them ways to do that. Um, you know, but for you, you, you see a lot of new players. I know that you help a lot of, uh, new players. You want to grow the game and, um, how do you how do you get people to get past the emotional uh, decision making that sometimes uh, can blow people up in, in any of these disciplines? Yeah, well, in poker we call that tilt, and yep. tilt essentially like a pinball machine when it goes off, you know, it no longer you know functions properly, and and that's similar to like a poker player's mind when he goes on tilt. And really, what I try to focus on when I you know when people talk about their bad luck and their bad beats, you know, whether it's in the market or in poker, is to look at the responsible version. And rather than the victim version, right? What is the responsible version? Was I prepared? Did I make the right play? Did I make the best decisions that I could? What areas could have I improved on? Did I make any mistakes? And if I did, let me acknowledge them and commit to how I can, you know, do better in the future. There's no value in analyzing situations where you were just unlucky. As long as you made a decision that, you know, whether it's in the market that made a lot of sense and it was backed up by the data that made sense, you, you obviously know when you make it, you know, it, it could go either way. You expect in the long run, the more positive decisions you make, the more money you're going to make. Spending time and energy focusing on, you know, how unlucky you are doesn't add a lot of value to your bottom line. So my focus is always on the decisions that you had control over. Did you make the right ones in the moment? And when you didn't, how do you, you know, commit to, you know, fixing that mistake in the future? How do you plug that leak, as we say? That's fantastic advice. Yeah, I think uh, it really applies to training. It's one of the things we try to really pound home is just what you're talking about. I think it 
analogous completely with what you're saying is, you know, keep your position sizes small enough that um, you can survive a string of bad luck. Um, keep your decision making based on data that is in your favor and maximize the the number of occurrences that you're involved in over time. Um, you know, that's how, um, that's how you turn high probability, uh, positive, uh, probability, positive EV situations into, uh, profits over time. And so I think that's super important for everybody to, to listen to. Uh, hey, Daniel, I'm curious, when was the last time that you were on tilt or, or have you become tilt proof now? Uh, this last year has been creating a lot of tilt for me. It has nothing to do with the poker tournament. Just every time I hear Donald Trump say something ridiculous, <laughs> so Donald I Trump. me on monkey tilt. I swear, Donald like, I'm Trump. Like, what is wrong with this guy? Donald Trump <laughs> has half the country on tilt. He really I does. I think he's got the whole country. <laughs> he's got the Trump supporters on tilt and angry, and he's got the people that are opposed to him super angry. And he's causing, like, you know, people talk about divisiveness in this country, right? And in the last year and a half, I've seen it worse than I ever have in the past. And I think part of that reason is, you know, Trump being such a divisive, you know, character and reckless with his rhetoric. So Landon and I have a so take off your who hope who you hope wins, and from a strictly financial standpoint, Landon and I have. Uh, decent size bet on uh donald trump to win the presidency where we're gonna get um i think it's something like four or four and a half to one odds uh if he wins we get four or four and a half times the money we're risking how do what do you think from a value proposition from an ev perspective would you make that bet yeah it's obviously there there were times where the price was even better than that yeah but right now having that price is a good position because I mean, if you look at Nate Silver and some others, the betting line is what I really focus on. And she's down to just a minus 260 favorite. Yeah. So, you know, the last couple of weeks with the dump, the Comey dump on this sort of new email, quote unquote, scandal, where there's not much information other than they, we have new emails that they really talk too much about what's in them. So but this is obviously great, giving a lot of people pause because, you know, Clinton has trust issues with many of the American people. And that I find that funny, too, because Trump seems to get a pass, despite the fact that if you look at the data and you look at PolitiFact or any independent fact checkers, he lies more than any other candidates combined in terms of his positions and his past and, you know, and everything along those lines. Hey, I had a, I had a question about a bet, and you mentioned that Trump wins bet. We actually have another bet um, that is that Hillary won't be the next president inaugurated. So it's not exactly the same as Trump wins. And I was trying to get, I have a, a liberal friend that I bet with, and he would give me the Trump wins line, but he wouldn't include Hillary won't be inaugurated as the, the decider. And I was wondering, do you think there's any value to that discrepancy? Do you think there's any chance she wins and then something happens with Comey or whatever where she doesn't end up being inaugurated? Not really. I mean, I, I, I can understand the reasoning why th this bet would have made sense like six months ago yeah. or, you know, when Bernie Sanders was still in the mix and, you know, there were still questions. But this late in the game, um, you know, with just like less than a, just a few days left, um, I don't think it matters at this point making the, the you know, the delineation between uh, whether it's Hillary or, or another Democrat. Gotcha. Um, so one of the things just real quick to wrap this up, it's a question we ask of uh, everybody that's a guest on the podcast. Um, one of the things like Folio focuses on are um, companies that uh, consumers love and uh, finding out which companies are doing well on Main Street before that translates to 
uh, stock price increases on Wall Street. And so I'm just wondering, you live in Las Vegas, correct? Correct, yeah. And poker player and, um, you know, you've, you've got some uh, money and some success. What are some companies, um, what are some products that, that you really like or that you see getting traction in your circle of friends, um, you know, that maybe we should be keeping an eye on? Well, I, it's actually specific businesses in, in Las Vegas, and those would be nightclubs. Uh, seven of the top 10 nightclubs, I believe, in the entire world exist in Las Vegas, and they do incredibly well. Um, Vegas has become, you know, the mecca for, uh, you know, restaurants, but also in the last five years, uh, nightclub, uh, you know, nightclubs have flourished in, in Las Vegas. Are those, um, are those hosted by any of the larger casinos like the Wynn or Bellagio or any of those? Are, are, are they located in those? Absolutely. Well, the Wynn has uh, a, a very successful club called XS and Surrender. And then you have other clubs, uh, uh, the Marquee at Aria. Uh, they have a day club and a night club. And they just, they do extremely well. They just, they pack those places up. You know, bottle service, if you've ever been, you got a table, you're looking at 3500 to 5500 to just get the table, you know, like a two, three bottle minimum. And each bottle is like $1,000 for a bottle of vodka. Now, you know, the now I'm on tilt. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you want to go out and party in Vegas and do it right, as they say, with eight to ten people, you're looking at a ten, twelve thousand $12,000 bar tab. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's beyond my bankroll. Hey, yeah, Daniel, most got, people, but they spend it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. I, I've got a question for you that it's kind of interesting because you're one of the smartest guys, obviously, in poker. You're very successful, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. In your mouth, I want to talk a little bit about some of the left ideology and see if it applies. Um, I know that a lot of the people who lean left have a very like win lose mentality when it comes to the economy. And what I mean by that is that they believe that for in order for one person to win, someone else has to lose. And for one person to get rich, someone else has to be held back or be taken from. Of course, that leads a lot to the negative rhetoric around the one, the top 1%. Um, and of course, on the right, they would disagree, saying that wealth is created and people can get rich by not only not hurting people, but by helping other people. And I was wondering, since you're in the, an, a micro economy that is actually you know, win-lose. Zero-sum. Zero-sum, right. I, I was wondering if that has any influence on your political mindset. Well, I wouldn't say that it has much influence on my personal political mindset, but I will tell you this. The vast majority of the best poker players in the world, all the, almost every one of them that play in the $100,000 buy-ins or above, many of them were Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, and, and there are none that are Trump supporters. They simply don't exist at the highest levels. In poker, if you want to find a really good game, a soft game that you're going to be able to make a lot of money in, look for a game with a bunch of people wearing red hats and say, make America great again. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's going to be a berry patch, you know, typically speaking. Obviously, that's not a rule in, cer- in terms of every Trump supporter, but on average, you're, you're going to find a good game if you find Trump supporters in it. So how do you feel about the notion that in order for one person to get rich, someone else has to get poor or be held back? Does it? Obviously, that's the yeah. case in poker, but in the economy in general, would you agree? Yeah, that's that- not exactly. It's not exactly how I perceive it in, in, in the strictest sense in the way that you described it. Um, I, I do believe that you know um, that you know Wall Street has to have some regulation. I do believe that. Um, I do believe it's unfortunate that people in the highest tax bracket 
have so many available loopholes to pay virtually no taxes, as you know, Trump has you know bragged about not paying any in the last eighteen years. And and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't actually slam him for that. He's doing what he, he's doing what's legal, which is to you know, you know, he basically borrowed money from a bank to buy some property that went under, and then he used that tax tax break to free him up for paying for tax for eighteen years. And I don't think he did anything wrong per se. I think that. You know, he played within the system and he, and he played within the rules. And I don't condemn him for that. What I do condemn is the system itself yeah. that allows for things like this. Like, it's just unfair that people that are really struggling are, you know, you know, pay, they don't have the access to high powered lawyers that can read a, a, such a complicated tax code that allows them to find loopholes where they don't pay anything or virtually nothing while struggling people who have to put food on the table, you know, don't have that opportunity to do that and pay their fair share. Yeah, it would be a real shame if we ended up with a president that has close ties to to people like Goldman Sachs or or <laughs> others. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> That's awesome. I got one more for you, Daniel. I I read your uh, AMA on Reddit a little while ago, and you talked about it was someone asking you, I think, for just general life advice, and you talked about. Uh, picturing your end game and writing down what you wanted out of life in five or 10 years. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Is that still something that you preach and, and how can people use that or other lessons to, to achieve their goals? Well, yeah. And, you know, I was just in Atlantic City. I'm driving back to Philadelphia right now for uh, the Chad Brown Memorial. And I bring him up because he passed away a few years ago after losing a battle with cancer. And I, I spoke into his vision for his life. And despite knowing that he only had, you know, six months to a year to live. He still lived every day in the moment. He still looked at his vision for his life and inspired other people to be better. And ultimately, he left a legacy. And his legacy lives on with the event we raised money for last night and, and going forward. And for me, I'm a big believer in having a clear vision on what it is you want to accomplish in your life. And then ultimately, a legacy of what you want to leave. What do you want your gravestone to say? What do you want your tombstone to say? You want it to say, you know, hey, you were a great poker player. What a bunch of bracelets. Or does it matter more to you that you your grave, you know, your tombstone says you were a good father, a good husband, a good friend, an inspiration to other people? So I think it's valuable enough to think about what it is that you have envisioned for a life that works for you. What is the stream life that you want to accomplish? Write it down in great detail and then think more deeply down the road when, when your last day is here and you have your last day. What do you want your legacy to look like? What do you want people to remember you for in terms of the man that you were and, and how you contributed to society? Awesome. I think that's uh, great advice that we can all agree on. It's been a pleasure having you on. Again, high energy, smart, um, tremendous, tremendously successful guy. Um, tell us, tell the audience how uh, how they can follow you on Twitter about your podcast. Let's uh, let's get a plug in because I know people will want to hear more from you. Okay. Well, my Twitter account is Real Kid Poker, and actually, I think a lot of people who listen to your podcast will enjoy mine. Uh, it's called Full Contact Poker, and what I focus on is the business side of poker. My the first guest I had on was my agent, and we talk about how it works. You know how who who makes the money. Uh, I talked to a lot of the powerful people in the game about you know sort of uh, the behind the scenes things in terms of how advertising works um, and how people can profit off the game from endorsements and other things like that. Awesome. That sounds really cool. We will link to uh, that and, of course, continue to link to your Twitter account from uh, Like Folio and Andy Swan. If, um, and if people want to reach out to Andy at likefolio.com, uh, I can also uh, email that information to you. So, um, Daniel, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I hope, I hope um, 
I don't know that I hope things go exactly your way over the next four <laughs> days, but right. uh, I think you're in good shape. And I, uh, you've got a fan in this, three fans in this corner over here. So uh, keep it up. Really appreciate you being on. Well, thanks for having me. It was it was nice to have a civil conversation. All right, well, have a good one. Have a good time in Philadelphia. Go win some money. All right, take care. All right, see you.